Afghans confused by the president's claim that the war in their country is almost over today, Wednesday, February 13th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Today we assess President Obama's State of the Union address and we ask, is the language of American political speeches getting dumber compared to those abroad? It differs from place to place. In Europe, the speeches tend to be much more driven by policy and therefore have language which is much more complicated than the kind of language the president would have used last night in the State of the Union. And later, the mystery surrounding Israel's Prisoner X. What was the identity of a mysterious prisoner in one of Israel's toughest jails? And why the secrecy behind his extraordinary incarceration? PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There are many ways to unpack President Obama's State of the Union speech last night, but for us, a few things stand out. Today on the program, we'll talk about the president's language on climate change. Also, why was the president pointing to a German model for technical education? We've got a guest in a couple of minutes. He'll tell us Europeans are actually looking to the U.S. for guidance on technical and vocational training. But first, the news from the president about the war in Afghanistan. Here's what he said. Tonight, I can announce that over the next year, another 34,000 American troops will come home from Afghanistan. This drawdown will continue. And by the end of next year, our war in Afghanistan will be over. Sounded like the president said the war in Afghanistan is basically finished. Bilal Sarwawi is a correspondent for the BBC. He's also an Afghan and lives in Kabul. Bilal, you were standing online in a little shop in Kabul this morning when Afghans were talking about this portion of the State of the Union speech. Were they applauding like the lawmakers on Capitol Hill? No, they were not. Uh, most of those people were ordinary Afghans. They looked confused. You know, they had sad faces. They were staring at the TV sets. And for a few minutes, the conversation was evolving around the ability and capability of the Afghan National Army. Can they fight the Taliban without NATO and the help of the U.S. Army? Can they carry out those big operations without the air support of NATO and U.S. troops, which is here right now? So those were all uh, questions that they were asking. And these people in the supermarket, they uh, believe that the Afghan National Army can or cannot do the job? Well, people had many concerns and many doubts. Uh, and let's not forget the Afghan National Army still lacks an air force. Only one of the brigades can operate on its own, can carry out independent operations. Uh, you have to remember Afghanistan is a very mountainous, very rugged country. It's never easy to transport troops. It's never easy to move around. And the U.S. Army and other NATO countries of all of those capabilities. It is pretty extraordinary. You know, Afghan strangers meet up in a supermarket and they wheel out these pointed analyses of a U.S. presidential speech that happened thousands of miles away. Well, this is one of the differences in post-Taliban Afghanistan. You've had a, a media boom. You have all these television stations broadcasting uh, any and every news from all over the world. But Afghans see their future intertwined, connected with U.S. and NATO. You have to remember that uh, most Afghans don't have a problem 
recognizing or knowing about the U.S. politics or its leaders because Afghans have been following all of those politics for the last 10 years or so. What about you, Bilal? Do you have confidence that your country's army and police can keep you and your family safe when U.S. and NATO troops leave? Every and any Afghan has a lot of hope in their DNA. It's inside your blood. Uh, That's how you're brought up. But it's true that uh, I have uh, fears and I have concerns like any other Afghan. For me, the last 29 or 30 years, like most Afghans, have been all about war or instability. So one of the first fears that I and many other Afghans share is, will Afghanistan, God forbid, return to the pre-1989 days? When the Soviets had pulled away from Afghanistan, the West was no more interested. And uh, that allowed uh, for the civil war in 1992, which led to the rise of Taliban. So those are uh, fears that are real, that exist in the Afghan society. But as I said, this is also a country where people uh, have not given up hope. And most Afghans are also hopeful about the future. But right now, the situation on the ground is not as good as some Western and Afghan leaders would like you uh, to, to, to hear that. And one of the things that uh, most people are also talking about is why is it that the outgoing uh, U.S. general, who was also the NATO general, General John Allen, was saying that this war will take longer to win and the U.S. should win it. And now President Obama has just said that the war will end by next year. Mm, kind of a contrast. Kabul resident and correspondent for the BBC, Bilal Sarawawi, speaking with us from Kabul. Thank you, Bilal. Thank you. The foreign policy part of President Obama's speech last night also mentioned Europe a couple of times. Tonight I'm announcing that we will launch talks on a comprehensive transatlantic trade and investment partnership with the European Union because trade that is fair and free across the Atlantic supports millions of good-paying American jobs. Some are already comparing that idea to an economic version of NATO. Obama also touted a European model of technical education as vital to creating jobs. Right now, countries like Germany focus on graduating their high school students with the equivalent of a technical degree from one of our community colleges. So those German kids, they're ready for a job when they graduate high school. Both these issues caught the interest of Willem Post. He studies all things American and European at a Dutch think tank called the Klingendal Institute in The Hague. First, he says a new economic partnership with America is of strong interest to Europe. Yes, definitely, because we are in big problems, our economy. And, you know, Europe is not that relevant anymore from a strategical perspective. We have to pivot to Asia, to China. The United States is so much involved in this. So... Yes, from an economic point of view, it's very important uh, to to have these two blocks together in a free trade zone. And also maybe as an example for good economic, uh, let's say, capitalist behavior for, for the Chinese and some other countries in Asia. If the United States and Europe do it all together in this uh, free trade zone... Yeah, that sends a message all over the world. And I would guess uh, another positive note in President Obama's uh, talk last night was uh, how he tied uh, economics to education. And that's one of your uh, areas of specialty, uh, Willem Post. Yeah. Uh, he spoke of the high quality of technical training, uh, specifically in Germany's high schools. Tell us what you know about that. Yeah, well, you know, those German high schools, they give degrees. If, if, if you finish your high school, you get also a degree 
at least that's possible in many schools, uh, a technical degree. And in Germany, they learned that from uh, community colleges and high schools in the United States. And I myself, I'm leading delegations twice or three times a year to the U.S. to learn from your community colleges, yeah, where you have different pathways to success. And, and I went to the Boston area uh, a few months ago with a whole group of Dutch educators, and we were very much impressed. Also, we went to the uh, Department of Education at Harvard, to Professor Schwartz, who uh, not too long ago published a report, Pathways to Success. And he stressed, yes, Academic education is very important in the traditional way, but let's also focus on, on another path, eh? the community colleges and technical degrees and math and science. I'm, and, I'm, kind of here, I'm kind of surprised to hear you saying this because, I, you know, I, I don't know what you found when you were here, but typically community colleges and technical vocational schools in this country tend to get short shrift. Yeah, but, you know, I think that in the U.S. you see now more and more a development that high schools call themselves high schools for math and science, even if you get their geography or history or English. For instance, the Thomas Jefferson School, one of the best in your country in, in, in the U.S., in, in, in Washington area, I think in, in Arlington, in Virginia. Uh, those schools are examples for our more traditional schools in, in Europe. But it's definitely now also a trend that, and in Germany, eh, as we have seen, as, as we've heard from the U.S. president, but also in, in other uh, European countries. Finland, for instance, is also an example where you see more and more schools focused on these uh, uh, technical uh, skills. And, and, and uh, I think that's a very uh, important development. And, and also your charter school movement in the U.S. I know there is a whole discussion about this, but mm. for instance, the Harlem Children's Zone, many delegations from Europe go to Harlem and learning from how you can get business involved uh, to help school schools improve themselves. So both sides of the Atlantic, although in these times you think, is it still existing, the Atlantic, with all these social media and, and mass transport, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's diminishing all those distances. Yeah, we're coming together also in this field. It's a global economy. And the president of the United States, he showed himself as a more or less as also as a world citizen uh, last night, talking in this way about education and foreign politics. Willem Post with the Klingendahl Institute in The Hague. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take action on climate change or I'll do it by myself. That was one of the many challenges President Obama issued to Congress last night. The president has a number of tools he can use from regulating CO2 emissions to ramping up efficiency standards for homes and businesses. But whatever the results of his challenge, the words themselves were welcomed by many in the U.S. and beyond who've been pushing for strong action to address global warming. Among them is Bill Hare. He's a physicist and director of an outfit called Climate Analytics in Berlin. They help governments try to bridge the gap between the science and policy of climate change. I personally found the statement of the president very helpful and very timely. Many in the scientific community have waited a long time for such a clear signal from President Obama and indeed any U.S. leader of a clear intent to move forward to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, let's get to the brass tacks of what regulating carbon emissions would mean. I mean, there's been a general consensus that without something like a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade program, the U.S. really can't make the kind of progress that would really make a, a global difference. What do you think? 
Well, ultimately, of course, um, we do need a price on carbon, a price on greenhouse gas emissions, whether it comes through a trading system or a tax. But in the first instance, we can definitely make very big gains to start the process of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, as you said a moment ago, a lot of people around the globe have uh, waited for a long time for the kind of language uh, we heard last night from a U.S. president. Do you think anything is going to come out of the administration that will inspire other key countries like uh, China, India, Brazil to step up? Well, China doesn't need much inspiration. It's already moved ahead with a lot of action. Um, So in some sense, the United States is catching up on that. Certainly, I would hope that action in the United States would inspire India to take its own cost-effective action. That that country has a lot of opportunities which uh, would produce profound benefits for its population. So I I think that would be good. But I think the more important message coming from real action by uh, President Obama is that the U.S. is now in the game again for the first time in a long time. And that has an important psychological signal to not just the big countries, but lots of smaller countries that are struggling to put in place costly but ultimately beneficial actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I don't think one can easily underestimate the power of example. Now, one of the big litmus tests uh, people on both sides of the debate here are setting up for the president is the Keystone Pipeline, which would carry really dirty oil from Canada into the U.S. Uh, Obama's going to have to make a call on that later this year. How significant do you think that decision is? That could be quite a fundamental bellwether test of Obama's commitment. I mean, locking in a very long-term source of emissions, such as the Keystone Pipeline, would be a very adverse signal. President Obama is not the only national leader facing those kinds of choices in the next year between carbon-intensive development or alternatives. If Obama missteps on that, it would definitely send a signal to the world that the U.S. is not yet serious about dealing with this problem. Finally, Bill, let me ask you about uh, John Kerry, the new Secretary of State. He's uh, been one of the most outspoken lawmakers when it comes to climate change. Do you think President Obama was sending a signal by appointing him uh, Secretary of State? And how much of a factor might Kerry be in working with other countries on climate solutions? Senator Kerry uh, is a legend in in a certain part of the climate policy community for his commitment to acting on climate change. So I think, for my feeling personally, it's a very strong signal. Bill Hare, Director of Climate Analytics in Berlin. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The government of Australia is reviewing the case of an Australian man who reportedly died in an Israeli jail. Yesterday, an Australian TV report claimed the man had worked for Israel's Mossad intelligence agency and that he hanged himself in a prison cell two years ago. The Israeli government issued a gag order on the story. It was later partially lifted, and today the government admitted that it did hold a man with dual citizenship under a false name for security reasons. The world's Matthew Bell reports. 
There was something missing this morning in my English language edition of the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, and that was the big story of the day. A government gag order barred Israeli news outlets from reporting on a man who's come to be known as Prisoner X. Fortunately for readers, the very same story was included in today's print edition of the International Herald Tribune, which is sold and delivered together with Haaretz. Later today, Israeli officials lifted the ban, at least partially. The news media here still can't report the story, but they can report on foreign reports about it. What was the identity of a mysterious prisoner in one of Israel's toughest jails? And why the secrecy behind his extraordinary incarceration? We shouldn't be talking about this on the phone. A half-hour ABC Australia documentary that aired on Tuesday claims that Prisoner X was an Australian man in his early 30s. His name was Ben Zeiger. He worked for the Mossad. For several months in 2010, the TV report says Zeiger was held in extreme secrecy in Israel's most secure prison. Even his guards didn't know his identity. When details were reported on an Israeli news site, the government had the item removed and interrogated the reporter. A blanket reporting ban was imposed. Then, in December of 2010, the report says Zeiger, who went by the name Ben Alone, hanged himself. When these details started to get picked up in Israel yesterday, the government put a lid on the story. By suppressing the media, they magnified the importance of that story. Yossi Melman is an Israeli commentator on national security affairs and the co-author of Spies Against Armageddon. He says this was a case of the Israeli government being overzealous in its effort to protect secrets. And now Israel is tarnished, its image is tarnished as, as a country in which prisoners are disappearing. We are a democratic free society, at least when it comes to Israeli citizens. People don't disappear in Israel. Melman says if this Australian man was a Mossad agent imprisoned for high crimes against the state, he still would have had access to due process, legal representation, and perhaps even family members. But the blanket gag order, Melman says, probably helped paint a more sinister picture. Ron Ben Yishai is a national security correspondent with the Israeli newspaper Yediot Aranot. He says government censorship can be annoying, but it has its place. Israel has a lot of enemies. We would like to have someone looking over our shoulder when we deal with matters of sensitive information. As for the wisdom of the government gag order on this story, Ben Yishai told me he doesn't know enough particulars. And besides, he probably couldn't talk about them, even if he did. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, I know you're going to love today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the name of a Greek island in the eastern Aegean Sea. It's about 10 miles off the coast of Turkey. The island was once home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That was a giant statue of the Greek titan Helios, a colossus which later inspired the design of our Statue of Liberty. But our interest in this Greek island was sparked by a much smaller statue found there. It's a 2,000-year-old sculpture of Eros, the Greek god of sexual love, and it's now on display at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. We're going to get the answer from Sean Hemingway, curator of Greek and Roman art at the Met. Here's his description of the sculpture. It's a statue of the god of love, Eros, and it's uh, said to be from the island of Rhodes. It's a, it's a masterpiece of bronze sculpture. He's represented as a young child, just a, really a baby, and he's sleeping on a rock. 
and he's just dropped his bow and fallen into a deep sleep. He's in the midst of his labors. His, his uh, quiver is open. You can see an arrow from the quiver by his head. And the bow is missing, but would have been just on his hand. And like babies do, he's just fallen asleep, but in the midst of his labors. What does he do for a living? I mean, is he just going around making people fall in love and shooting arrows at them? That's what he does. He, he, he makes people fall in love. He also can make people not fall in love. And one of the famous myths of that is the, the myth of Apollo and Daphne. He shoots Apollo with one of his gold-tipped arrows, and uh, he falls in love with Daphne, this beautiful nymph. But he shoots also he also shoots Daphne with a lead-tipped arrow, which makes her um, abhor Apollo. And so she runs from him, and she, she turns into a laurel tree rather than become the lover of Apollo. So he's asleep, this version of Eros, and people presumably are flocking to see Eros on Valentine's Day, right? Yes. No, it's a wonderful exhibit for Valentine's Day. And of course, love was was represented by a god in Greek times and was considered central to human existence. It's still a central part of human life, I think. You know, the fact that Eros is sleeping and not really quite in sync with the hallmark vision of Eros. I mean, are people somewhat deflated or are they still kind of inspired when they see the statue? It's a very inspiring statue to see. And and I think what the artist is portraying is really the innocence of love and the purity of love in a baby which has that purity, but also a sleeping baby is almost a thing of perfection. And, and in that you see that love really the perfection of love. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. And and when you see the sculpture, you really understand it. It was probably a religious dedication to the god or to his mother, Aphrodite. It would have been very appropriate as such, probably at a sanctuary on Rhodes, the island of Rhodes. So the Greek island of Rhodes is the answer to our geo-quiz, Rhodes in the eastern Aegean Sea. I think a lot of people might be a little perplexed because often Eros, Cupid, is seen as an edgy character, maybe maybe even a touch cruel and capricious, kind of like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. Where does that come from? And then we've got this beautiful sleeping baby at the same time. Well, I think it is a contrast because earlier images of Eros in Greek art do show him. They show him arming his bow. There's a famous statue attributed to Lysippus, the great Greek sculptor of the 4th century BC, where he's getting ready to wound with his arrows. And another famous statue by Praxiteles, uh, literary references talk of his burning gaze of his eyes and the desire in them. Uh, So the artist, I think, of this statue was trying for something different, still within the confines of religious sculpture and uh, came upon this idea that I think really looks to the perfection of love and and the innocence of love. You ever uh, fallen in love in front of it yourself? Well, it does evoke strong emotions like Eros did. And I think when you see it, when people see it, it, the image of the sleeping Eros was so popular in Roman times and it was picked up in the Renaissance. It's become almost a kind of a cliche in the image of a sleeping baby. Um, But when you see the sculpture, you really get it. You, You see the perfection of it and the beauty of it. Sean Hemingway, curator of Greek and Roman art at the Met in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've got photos of sleeping arrows, quiver, arrows, wings, the works at theworld.org. And we've got a few geotexting game winners to name. They are Sonia in Boulder, Kirsten in Kennewick, Washington, and one more, Alejandro in Cleveland. I thought I might be a winner today. Honestly, I just had um, some great teachers early on in life that went over the seven wonders of the ancient world with me. You know, I saw island in the Aegean Sea where the Colossus was, and I knew it was Rhodes. I'm ecstatic. And we'd love it if you play along next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, GEOQUIZ, to 69866. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Marco Rubio's Spanish doesn't thrill everyone in America's Latino community. 
And later, can you imagine the United Nations in, say, the Black Hills of South Dakota? It might have happened, but then reality sunk in. You could think of house hunting, and it's the same process, right? You start with grand dreams, and then you discover what's practical. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Republican response to President Obama's State of the Union address last night came from Florida Senator Marco Rubio. He blasted the president as a big spender and supporter of big government. Not much new there. Republicans have said that about Democrats for decades. What was new was that Rubio delivered his message in both English and Spanish. Listen. A not very subtle Republican effort to reach out to Latino voters who played a critical role in President Obama's re-election last fall. Senator Rubio is a Cuban-American, and he mentioned his immigrant roots in his response. He's also one of the senators supporting comprehensive immigration reform now. We wondered how Rubio's speech in Spanish might have gone down among Latinos further west of Florida. We're going to pose that question to Professor Richard Pineda. He studies politics and communications at the University of Texas at El Paso. Professor, first of all, what did you think of Senator Rubio's speech in Spanish? Well, Marco, I think it's an important nod to the Latino communities you indicated. And I think for people around the country, uh, it certainly is important to to hear a politician who has uh, that particular immigrant background. Uh, I will say what's interesting is that, that a lot of markets didn't carry that uh, immediately afterwards. And so, for example, I had to watch that online. So right out of the gate, there's some question about uh, how much depth and, and where the, the speech was actually heard. And why didn't uh, everybody carry it? I don't know, but I think that that's a, an, uh, an important question just about the populations and, and where the dispersal of the Latino-Latino population is in the United States. Uh, I think it also begs the question about uh, how significant media felt the, the speech was to address that particular population. And so in some ways, um, I would contend that, that even with the importance of, of the timing of that speech, uh, that really what, what you're looking at is uh, another level of window dressing in terms of reaching out to the Latino-Latino community. Now, uh, I don't speak Spanish, but I'm told that uh, Marco Rubio speaks Spanish with a Cuban accent. His parents are Cuban, so that's understandable. Um, But does that accent affect how Latinos elsewhere in the U.S., like Mexican-Americans, for instance, how they hear his message? I think that's a great question. There's, there's two important answers to that. The first is yes. I think that uh, Spanish, while, while certainly universal across the Latin American community, uh, is heavily nuanced and it's also heavily accented. And, and those accents really do uh, have some impact on, on intergroup dynamics. And so in other words, uh, people who are Cuban have a, have a, a distinct accent from uh, quite a few folks that are Puerto Rican and, and folks that are from, from uh, Mexico. So I think that there is some dissonance immediately in terms of the language. So I think that Spanish language listeners would know um, that Senator Rubio is Cuban, and, and that may uh, come with a certain level of baggage. What kind of baggage were you referring to? 
There's a lot of nationalism that still exists. Uh, so if you speak to uh, Mexican-Americans, for example, who are in the second or third generation, they really distinguish themselves from uh, Cuban-Americans who, who they see in a, in a different and distinct light. Um, I think that it reveals the subtlety of a class conflict that exists across the Latino community and also, uh, I think, highlights the, the geographic difference and disparity so that you've got a very unique experience in terms of immigration for groups in different parts of the country. So did Marco Rubio sway Latinos last night? In some ways, the speech that I heard last night was a translation of the speech that was done in English. And so there's an interesting question about the intent and the the actual construction of the speech. Mm. I think if the Republicans were really looking to use Rubio to the to the maximum potential, his response to the State of the Union would have been critical, of course, of the president as, as it was, but would also address some thought about policy change on issues like immigration or uh, on, on policies that deal specifically with the Latino community. And so uh, questions aimed particularly at education that were specific to that group. I think that the difficulty, and this is really the dance in some ways the Republicans will have to engage in over the next two years going into the midterms and then four years going into the presidential, is how to outreach to these communities without losing the base of their supporters. And and even this morning, I mean, I read a statement from one of the more conservative English-only movements, um, and one of their spokespeople was talking about how they were very disappointed that this speech was given in Spanish uh, Mm. because they said that this continued to sort of coddle uh, the immigrant who who doesn't want to learn English. And so when you've got a party that's fighting over those issues, I think no matter how effective or how strong the message is, the policy message is in a speech like this, I think you lose it to the noise of of all of these other participants who are, uh, you know, fighting about the the role of, of this community in the United States as a whole. Professor Richard Pineda at the University of Texas, El Paso. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. So Marco Rubio's response in Spanish prompted mixed reactions from Latinos. A word now on the English used in the presidential address itself. According to the Guardian newspaper in Britain, the language used to deliver State of the Union speeches has gotten progressively dumber over the years. The Guardian website analyzed the reading levels of the annual speeches from George Washington's to Obama's and have found that our presidents are using simpler and simpler language. Here's Obama simplifying the term sequester last night. These cuts, known here in Washington as the sequester, are a really bad idea. For a politician, though, it's not necessarily a bad thing to simplify, according to political consultant Tad Devine. He's worked as a campaign advisor for Al Gore, John Kerry, and many other politicians around the globe. When the president talks about the sequester, something that people in Washington like to talk about, he's going to get nowhere with voters. And he and his team understand that. So he took the time last night, for example, to define that word, but then to talk about its implications and what it means. So what they would call dumbing down, I would call uh, developing language that actually connects. So is simplified English then kind of a good thing or more of a necessary thing for politicians who want to reach across you know, social strata? I personally think it's a very good thing. Um, These speeches, like the State of the Union, are meant to be opportunities for leaders to communicate with the public. I think to communicate in language that voters understand is much more powerful than using words and phrases and jargon in particular that they simply can't relate to. You know, but I can hear, you know, the language mavens, the English mavens saying, hey, you want to race to the top. I mean, you're going to compromise language? Well, I don't think the president treated the American citizens like two-year-olds last night. He spoke about uh, policy proposals. I don't think it's a question of dumbing things down. I think it's a question of developing language that people can understand so they can make judgments about whether or not they want to support policy proposals.
Now, you've advised leaders from around the world, from uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak to Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. Is this simplification of language, of rhetoric, an international thing? Well, it's different around the world. You know, in Europe, for example, I think the speeches tend to be much more driven by policy. And therefore, the speeches have uh, language which is much more complicated than the kind of language the president would have used last night in the State of the Union. Um, when you go to Latin America, where I've done a lot of work, uh, those speeches tend to be driven by an, an effort to connect emotionally with people. So there, there tends to be different language there. So it, it differs from place to place, although overall, I would think, particularly in the, the areas that I tend to work on in campaigns, which is the creation of television advertising, that the simpler we get the television ads, particularly the 30-second television ads, the better in terms of connecting with voters. Ted, you spoke about the passion that politicians in Latin America kind of evoke when they're speechifying. Um, give us an example. When you go to an event, as I have in places like Colombia or Bolivia, and tens of thousands of people are huddled into a you know a, a square, the emotions run very high, and that leads speakers, I think, to use rhetoric, whether it's the issues that are involved in the campaign, the personalities of their opponents, the uh, place that they're in, and its history. Uh, that tends to be a lot more emotional, frankly, than you know what we typically see in a speech in the United States or in Europe. And there's also other symbolism that is part of the political communication. For example, I've made a lot of, of ads in, in Latin America, and it's not untypical to have a statue of the Virgin Mary, you know, in the background when you're filming someone who's running for president of a country. That's not something we would typically see in the United States. No, we would not. That we'd see all the time, you know, uh, in, in Latin America. So those are, I think, powerful, both the imagery that we see and the language that leaders tend to use. Political consultant Tad Devine, thank you for your time. Good to be with you. Speaking of the language that leaders use, when the Pope announced his resignation this week, he did it in Latin. We explore issues of language in our regular World in Words podcast. You can listen and subscribe at theworld.org slash language. Here's a story that'll surprise you. As the Second World War shuddered to a close, the challenge was how to preserve a hard-won peace. A new body was conceived, the United Nations. The center of world power had shifted to the United States, so the idea was that it would meet here. But where in the U.S.? Back then, the plan was anywhere but New York City. The world's Alex Galifant explains. New York was too big, too famous. And besides, putting the U.N. inside another city felt wrong. How could a new center for global diplomacy distinguish itself in the shadow of the world's most famous skyline? So, where else? Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do well, the country wasn't short on confidence. No, yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. It felt like that in post-war America. And so this new idea of a capital of the world, a meeting place for all the peoples of the globe, well, it captured the imagination. Why shouldn't it be built in Conway, New Hampshire, or Pinehurst, North Carolina, or Corpus Christi, Texas? In all, nearly 250 towns, cities, and communities across America expressed interest in hosting the United Nations. Wouldn't it be most appropriate for the UN to be on an island at Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where they could be surrounded by peaceful water? I met up with the author Charlene Myers in Philadelphia. Her new book about the race to host the UN is called Capital of the World. 
Or wouldn't it be best for the UN to be in Tuscahoma, Oklahoma, which had been the capital of the Choctaw Nation as a statement of justice for、um, Native peoples? Now the proposals weren't exactly altruistic. Civic boosters were excited about the jobs and visitors the UN would bring. Centrally located in the United States, Rapid City is served by a regional airport with several major airlines, making it accessible and convenient from anywhere. That's a more recent ad for Rapid City in the Black Hills of South Dakota. In the 1940s, a local businessman tried to persuade the UN to make its home there, a stone's throw from Mount Rushmore. Rapid City's pitch included a set of fantastical architectural drawings. At its center, a road begins as a spiral and moves outward and outward and outward. It reminds me of the yellow brick road in The Wizard of Oz, which would have been fairly current at that time. And the offices were spaced around there, and they would have put villages for each national delegation out in the hills. And they also noted that the World Highway, which was envisioned as going around the world, would run straight through the middle. Around the world. Actually, around the world. Yes. <laughs> Boosters could dream big like that, but the small group of international diplomats assigned to find an American home for the UN to be had to think beyond the fantasies of a world capital. And you could think of house hunting, and it's the same process, right? You start with grand dreams, and then you discover what's practical. The West Coast was deemed too far from Europe. The Midwest had a reputation as being isolationist, not a good fit, and the South was ruled out over fears that non-white diplomats would feel unwelcome. So the search committee focused on America's Northeast, and they found a place they really wanted: Greenwich, Connecticut. Only Greenwich, Connecticut, didn't want them.、Uh, interestingly enough, the moderator of the town meeting was Prescott Bush, the father of one President Bush and the grandfather of another. He said, "We're not against the idea of the United Nations, but this will change the character of our town too much. And furthermore, and this is very important for Americans, nobody asked us first." And Greenwich wasn't the only place to turn the UN down. It was becoming embarrassing. The world's new decision-making body couldn't decide on a new home. Soon, only a few serious candidates remained. All of them in or near major cities, among them Boston and Philadelphia, which was offering a piece of public parkland just outside the center of town. Philly had the infrastructure, the cultural amenities, and as Charlene Myers reminded me outside Independence Hall, pretty good story too. Philadelphians were convinced they were going to win. The New York Times carried headlines saying the UN was about to anoint Philadelphia as the capital of the world. What was not known was that in the final days behind the scenes, the call had gone out to Nelson Rockefeller to help to solve this problem and bring the prize home to New York. Rockefeller's dad offered 8.5 million dollars to buy a plot of empty land on Manhattan overlooking the East River. There were no residents to placate. No obstacles to overcome. The power brokers of New York were offering the UN an easy solution. At the last minute, it wasn't about geopolitics. It wasn't about the idea of creating a capital of the world. There was to be no Oz-like fantasy city for global diplomacy. Instead, there were to be headquarters, somewhere to make deals, not dreams. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. This is PRI. I'm Marco Wertman. This is the world. You know what Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart looked like, right? 
think of the souvenir chocolates with a red jacketed white wigged image of Mozart on the wrapper. But what if that depiction of the 18th century composer is a myth? Last month, researchers in Salzburg, Austria, said they'd found a portrait of Mozart that shows what he really looked like. It was affixed to a small tobacco box. Mozart's roundish, childlike face gazes directly at the viewer without his signature white powdered wig. But some Mozart scholars don't buy it, like musicologist Michael Lawrence, who says he's skeptical about the tiny portrait. There are wonderful portraits of Mozart. The Lange portrait, the portrait done by Mozart's brother-in-law. Then we have the drawing that was made in Germany by Doris Stock. Right. But are these portraits, are they accurate in your opinion? They are authentic. They have a proven connection to Mozart. And as a matter of fact, they somehow even show common features. Even the posthumous portrait that uh, is so popular with the red uh, vest that was done long after Mozart's death by Barbara Kraft is visibly based on portraits that were done from life. Where did that quintessential image come from, that Barbara Kraft portrait uh, of Mozart in the red waistcoat, the one that's on all the chocolates? It was a mixture. Uh, In 1819, the Musikfreunde in Vienna wanted a portrait of Mozart. So they sent somebody to Salzburg to look for portraits, and Mozart's sister showed them what was available And they decided on a kind of composite image of Mozart. And this resulted in the famous portrait with the wig and the red vest, which is to be found on chocolate and everywhere. And nowadays, any person on a portrait dressed in red and wearing a white wig will be taken for Mozart. Why are so many people eager to know what Mozart really looked like? I mean, isn't his music enough? For some people, it isn't. They seem to have that delusion that they can somehow come closer to the genius of a person if they know better how he looked like. I don't get it either because it makes no sense. The music is, of course, enough. Well, I haven't been the same since Milo's Foreman's Amadeus. I still think Mozart looks like Tom Hulse. So there you go. Um, yeah, this, yeah, this can never be erased, this image, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Lawrence, musicologist and Mozart scholar, speaking with us from Vienna. Thank you. You're welcome. Finally today, every once in a while, you encounter something that sounds undeniably new. Take the music of the band Mateo from Salt Lake City, Utah. They play songs that blend traditional Chinese and American folk music. Benjamin Bombard has their story. Traditional Chinese folk instruments are generally used to play traditional Chinese folk music. Stuff like this. But the American band Mateo uses traditional Chinese folk instruments to make music like this. You might recognize that tune. It's a cover of the jazz classic Take 5. Mateo are 420-somethings from Utah. Eric Chipman, his wife Bryn Bagley Chipman, Luke Williams, and Jordan Riley. Eric, Bryn, and Jordan all speak fluent Mandarin Chinese. 
They were raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they did their Mormon missions in Taiwan. You just agree, I'm going to go be a missionary, and wherever you send me, I'll go. You know, So, yeah, you just get a letter, and you open it up, and, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in Taiwan for the next year and a half or two years. That's Bryn. She's a talented violinist, but in Mateo, she's often called upon to play the arhu. It's an iconic Chinese instrument, a fretless fiddle with a slender neck and just two strings. Bryn had been to China before as an English teacher, but as for Eric, the very thought of going to a crowded Asian country was overwhelming. Before I got assigned, I couldn't have thought of a place I wanted to go least. I hated big cities, I hated crowds, and just like you just see this footage of those streets which is thousands of people. That looks awful to me. I was really honestly terrified of it. When he wasn't proselytizing, Eric spent a lot of time hanging out in music shops, checking out traditional Chinese instruments. One of them caught his eye. The guzheng is the one that I'd always go to because you sounded better playing it than the other ones, you know? It was just like you sat down and, and the people I'd be with were like, wow, you're really good at that thing. <laughs> Shipping it home to Utah wasn't easy or cheap, but Eric began using the guzheng in his music. The first song it really worked in was called Sweet Sweeping Joy. Did you sleep through the night alive, Elizabeth? That song's on the band's first album, The Morning Market. When they recorded it, Matteo weren't exactly experts on their Chinese instruments. We knew these instruments, we already sort of felt like we were hacks at them. We, we just still are. We still are very much hacks. We just were not trained in any way, and so we wanted to do more justice to the instruments. Eric and the rest of the band spent six weeks last summer studying music at Sichuan University in Chengdu, China, and they learned just how incorrectly they'd been playing their Chinese instruments. There's just a very certain way to play the instrument. Um, the innovation and trying a different way isn't necessarily valued. When we played things that were new or different, it was kind of just confusing to them rather than being like, oh, that's cool. So the first four or five lessons, I was sitting on this note and just going... And I was like, I'm not going to learn anything but how to pluck this stupid string over and over. And then we were sort of done with the lesson. I started just playing like a... Like just a bluegrass lick. And like, what the heck was that? <laughs> Mateo did learn to play their Chinese instruments better and more authentically. They also recorded a new EP. And they called it The Sichuan Project. The songs on the album are still rooted in American indie folk music. But Eric isn't scared of Taiwan or China anymore. And he says that on this new album, China's just bigger. There's sort of this thing in Chinese aesthetic that we really like. Where, like, if you look at a Chinese landscape, it'd just be this big mountains and mist and waterfalls and just a really small little person on some cliff. It's like big nature, you know, like little people, just insignificance. And we wanted this to be bigger than our personal lives, I guess. For the world... I'm Benjamin Bombard, Salt Lake City. Wow, on paper, I never would have guessed Mateo would sound so cool. Mateo put together a video from the Sichuan Project, and we have it at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Suwarno. Gusto. Suffolk.
World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International